0: Vibe Machine
1: Josh Kiff here with another episode of Undercovers And I'm really excited because I get to chat to one of the most iconic album cover artists around Including many of his other achievements in in fashion and film and so on Uh, His name is Nick Egan and he's on the line How are you today Nick? Uh,
2: I'm great thanks, how are you doing?
1: I am very well. I've Look, reading through your biography is like a who's who of the rock world from the 70s through to today. The Clash, Dexys, Midnight Runners, Ramones, Sex Pistols, Malcolm McLaren, Bob Dylan in in excess. But before we jump into all of those artists and specifically your album work, I'm sort of keen to find out how you got started in art and more about how you became associated with music art.
2: Um, well, I went to, I happened to go to a, a small provincial art school in England called Watford, which is about 10 or 15 miles out of the center of London. And it just so happened it coincided with the um, birth of punk rock. Um, hmm. I, I started that school in 1976. And literally the day I started I, I, with a friend of mine, um, had been going to see this brand new band called the Sex Pistols, who had a very small following in. They played a residency at the Hundred Club in Oxford Street, and there were about. It started off with about seventy-five people there, and each weekend, each Tuesday, they did the residency on. He got more and more and more. Now, the day I decided to go to art school, because back in England, England in those days, you pretty much were if you if you were anything below middle class. What and I'd say I came from a middle class working middle class family with a single parent you really didn't have much option except to go and work in, 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 in trades like printing Hmm. or, or, or or bricklaying or whatever it was. It wasn't really much of a creative option. Um, but I was, I had some talent at art and I applied to an, to an art school called Watford art school, which is close to where I lived. Um, and Watford is about 15 miles away from the center of London. Um, the day I actually went for the orientation was the same day that the, um, Infamous um, uh, punk festival happened at the Hundred Club in Oxford Street. This is where there was two nights and the Sex Bus was played headline one night and the Clash headline the second night. Um, the day I actually <coughs> went in for the orientation at the art school, um, my friend and I, Pete Barrett, who actually lives in Melbourne now, and he and I used to work together on our first album cover. Uh, he and I were painting our shirts to go to the festival. We didn't even go to the orientation. <laughs> and we went to the and we went and we went to the show that night. Now that's pretty much how the rest of my art school um, time went. It, it was pretty much doing everything except for what we were supposed to be doing at the college. So
1: I um, <laughs> love it. So and and you know, to be honest, there was no option. Hey everyone, it's Josh here in the editing studio. Unfortunately, just as Nick started talking about Mick Jones and the Clash, we had a computer failure and our systems completely crashed. After a few minutes of figuring out how to get in touch with each other again, Nick called me on Skype and we continued our conversation. You will notice a sharp difference in the recording quality. Skype has never been my friend, so I do apologise. However, stay tuned because Nick's incredible stories, his sharp mind and his career highlights shine through the entire chat. We pick it back up with Nick describing the music and art scenes in the UK around the time he started art school. And as you'll hear, Talk about being the right person in the right place at the right time. So so let me just
2: track, track back then. So just basically what we did, there was this kind of new um, idea about fanzine, do it yourself. People did it at, at home. People people made up their own, designed their own fanzines, you know, like sniffing glue and everything. So it, it became this DIY thing where you just did it yourself. So we created another art school of fanzine called Confidential, which in all honesty, it was just a way to get free records. And we'd go around the record labels, and we'd try and get free records, and then we'd sell them at Virgin or HMV. So it was really a bit of a scam on our behalf. It was there was no commitment behind it. But but we went into Phonogram one day, and um, we were sitting there waiting for the marketing person to come out, and this guy comes out, and he tells us we thought we we're in trouble. He said, um, "Do you mind following me into the conference room? I, you know, I need you to talk someone." So we reluctantly followed them into this room, and these these people came in, and they said, um, we have a label called Sire Records, and on that label, we have a bank called The Ramones. Of course, we knew exactly who they were. They, and, and The whole thing being that, because punk was so from the street, the record labels didn't really know how to, there, there was no... Uh, Concept for how to deal with these bands. It, it was so happening so quickly, they just didn't know. So they grabbed us because we looked the part <laughs> And um we, we we were putting this fanzine together and um they said we have a band called the Ramones and they have a single coming up
1: called sheena as a Punk Rocker, and we would like to do a limited edition run of t-shirts as giveaways. Would you guys be interested in doing these t-shirts? Wow. Us?
2: Right place so at the right time. Said, right exactly, exactly. And that's my whole thing is that and I you know I was on the yeah, I was on the, uh, a governor at the on the Grammys in the LA chapter of the Grammys and I've been to students and taught to students and you know everyone's trying to get in, a leg in and I said just sometimes you do have to be in the right place at the right time so that so we we, we we took this on really just not really knowing eh, what we were doing how to even deliver artwork you know it was a, we didn't really take it seriously and we realized the day before we were meant to be presenting this and we hadn't actually done anything so on the train up there, we literally took a t shirt, a white t-shirt, cut things out of the newspaper, stuck it on and gave and gave them this t-shirt with taped on bits of news headlines. And they just kind of looked at it. I don't know what they really thought, but they said, Great, great, okay. So they got this thing made up and they got this t-shirt printed and they said, Would you be interested in Because they saw that we painted stuff on our shirts and the paint drips and everything. And they said, Would you um be interested in uh, individually hands and Splashing these t-shirts, fifteen hundred of them. So we said, "Yeah." So we went. Wow. To this, we went to this warehouse in Putney, where they had these t-shirts by the river, and fifteen hundred doesn't seem like a lot until you actually start doing it. And I think we must have got through about eight hundred of them, and we just like, <laughs> fuck this, we're not going to do this. And, and the fumes of the of the, it was kind of one of those. It wasn't really like a paint; it was like more like a. It, it, it had that sort of gasoline smell to it. Anyway, so we dumped most of them in the River Thames. Uh, and and um, so we did this T-shirt. Now, we didn't think anything of it. This T-shirt has since become one of the most iconic, collectible, rare T-shirts in music T-shirts. And I didn't even take a copy of this T-shirt. <laughs> so years later, I started to work on the book with John Taylor from Duran and Duran, and, and we were trying to collect all of uh, my archive of things. And this is the one thing that I was missing. And then one day on Facebook, some guy said to me, "You did the and did the reverse T-shirt." And I said, "Yeah." I said, "Would you definitely showed me the T-shirt?" And he showed me a picture of it, and I said, "Yeah, that's the T-shirt I did." He said, "Well, I want to. you want to buy it for eight hundred pounds?" Which I don't know what well, that is in Australian money—about wow. twelve hundred, fifteen hundred dollars. And and um, I said, "Listen, I can't afford. I I, yeah, I can't afford to pay that." I so said, "I didn't even get paid for it in the first place." So he was a decent guy, and he sold it to me for two hundred, and I got this T-shirt and. There were two things that I, I I noticed from having got it. One was it was terrible. I mean, <laughs> it no thought behind it. it. It was just, I don't know how we got away with it. But the second was, on an emotional level, this was my path to what I ended up doing, and I still use a lot of the technique that I use this day. Rough edges, paint splashing, you know, I do paintings with that stuff. So it was quite an emotional thing finding this 35-year-old T-shirt or whatever it was. and um, so that's basically how we got a foot in the door. We, we didn't get paid, but we got invited to the show, and it was the um, it was the Ramones, the Talking Heads, and the Saints, of which it was uh, an Australian punk band. Yes. And I knew Chris Bailey. I actually met Chris Bailey years later with Michael Hutchins, a great guy, and they were the bottom of the bill. And then uh, we went to the party down in Chelsea afterwards, and Mark Bowden was there. So, so that was the beginning of my networking, and I was pretty good at it. I mean, you yeah, know, in terms of confidence of youth, you know, of, of of believing your own bullshit, a lot of it was. Um, and, and so I started to connect with people. Now through this somehow I guess I met somebody connected with Bernie Rhodes. Oh I know, we were gonna see the clash. That's right. That's how that's how we got to do the clash single. We were in Birmingham, where we were trying to hit you ride right back and Bernie said to me, We'll give you a ride home and in the car on the way down back to London, he gave us his manifesto of the clash and how the clash isn't a um it's not just about the four guys on stage. It's about the, um, it's about the community. It's about the people that design the clothes. It's about the people that, that, that uh, yeah mix and produce the music. Yep. It's about the people that do the artwork. Blah blah blah. And we asked us just again without any kind of even a single thought about wanting to see what we'd done previously or wanting to see the portfolio, asked us to do the White Men in Hammersmith Palais cover. Wow. Um, which we did, and we based off of the Jamaican studios, Jamaican studios where they recorded were kind of their own labels and they had these great little logos and what people do, people talk a lot about album covers but in, in the UK it wasn't about album covers, but album covers was the least important thing, it was about a single cover, single covers were the thing and, and I keep thinking that somebody needs to do an exhibition of single covers mm. because that's where the talent came from, that's that, that, that you know, there were four singles off an album people like um, Alan McDowell from Rockin' Russian and and Barney Bubbles and you know that that was where the emphasis went on to and the clash were all about the single covers too. So so we got to do this single cover for White Man in Hamster Palais. And this, there's a picture and I don't you might have seen it, it's, I think it's on my website somewhere, and it's a picture of me in um, a photo booth picture. I've just been to Rehearsal Rehearsals, which is where the clash rehearsed. And Mick Jones was there, and Mick Jones gave me a box of these. We never got paid for that job either, but Mick Jones gave me a box of these singles. It's a box of 45s, and they had all that different color sleeves. It was like, you can see the label in the hole. It was that Lichtenstein gun, and on the back it was the target of a guy in a target. And he gave a, and they all had a different color sleeve. There like was a blue one, a yellow one, a green one, and a pink one. And um, I went into the photo booth, and I remember I, I just took this thing out and did a photo booth picture of me. Now that photograph uh, has become like an icon in itself. I mean, it, it so it was bought in a. Uh, I did a charitable thing for abused wives and children, and it's sold in an auction. And, and and I've used it on a lot of various things um, because it because what it says it 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 it's, it reflects the punk movement itself because it was a photo booth, picture number one. Mm. It, was, it wasn't it was framed particularly well because the picture's kind of, the, the sleeve itself is half off the cover. And it, it, and it kind of said everything about what the punk movement was. I think that's why it resonates with so many people. Um, so that was the beginning of our relationship with the Clash's manager, Bernard Rhodes, who later told me that Public Enemy and Chuck D took that Target logo from the Clash to make the Public Enemy logo. Wow. So already, so already we had started to influence mm. you know, there was some influence coming now I'm a pretty modest person because I don't see it I never saw that myself my, my influence on people myself because I also thought it was something that was just you know I just happened along to um, then Bernie Rhodes said I have a band called Dex's Minute Runners and um, we need a record cover and Pete and I did it together we went to our library in our art school and we went through the tear sheets they've got a whole files of tear sheets and we found this picture and this great picture of this kid standing with a suitcase so we just put it on and we didn't think about copyright or or, or it belonged to the newspapers a cover of, a, of the Belfast Telegraph or any of that stuff none of that crossed our mind so <laughs> well and, it, and I don't think people did I mean at that point which oh, is a cool picture we used it so we put it and we made that cover which again became iconic yes. and and um and of course something like the Belfast Belfast Telegraph, or somebody was like, "Well, this is you know, this is a um, you know, you didn't get copyright for this, and blah blah blah." And they said, "You you didn't speak to the kid, and and apparently the kid loved it, and he gave his permission to use it. It was a, it was a in Belfast, and it was a um, they were being um, uh, uh, um, they, 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 there was a bomb scare, and they're having to sort of leave their houses, and he kind of and, it, and it worked so perfectly with that first Texas cover, so so. We had controversy, which is always helpful. Yes, <laughs> we, we did both of it. So all three of these things still at art school. We are only, we only in our second year at art school. Wow. Um, the you know we didn't do much of the art school curriculum, and because it was like these really boring things, like designing the, the, the storefront of a health food store and the, yeah, business <laughs> cards, and, and and I just about scraped through on the D on my diploma. So, um, but we weren't really interested. We had a great time at art school. Art school was a was a was the inspiration just being at art school was inspiration didn't need to do the course you know we you you meet people there, band style that kind of thing so so that was our that was our kind of introduction into into the music i mean we were we were huge music fans i mean you know we love music music was everything we we thrived on we went to shows we we bought albums and again this was in the day and i just there's apparently a great book and it's about the album itself and and I was listening to, a, to a, the radio. It came in England, I think it's called, I can't remember, based off a Roxy Music song, I can't remember the name of it, but basically, said so the album cover started in 1967 with the Beatles, because up until then, albums have been compilations of stuff, it hadn't really been a concept. Mm. And Sgt Pepper was the first conceptual album, and it ended with Thriller, with Michael Jackson, with the birth of the Walkman, where the Walkman became, you could create your own music and, and move around with it. So, so that was, and it, it was, and I agree with that. And, and what was so great about album covers and, and vinyls making a comeback, but never to the point it was, mm. um, was it was this personal, very tangible thing, you know, unlike music videos, which I did much later. And I had to really get persuaded into doing music videos because a music video, you don't get to choose when you see it. It came on the TV. But with an album cover, you you would go to friends' houses and listen to it. You would read every single piece of information that was on it you knew who the sax player that played on that thing you knew the producer you knew and bowie in particular was great for that because you know, he had teddy prendergrass and then he had david Samborne that played sax and and you kind of knew all these people you, it was like the secret little um the secret little world you lived in that only a few people knew about unlike, <laughs> unlike now where everything is available yeah there was an elitism there was an elitism about it and there's always elitism in art i mean there's always a few that, 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 that decide what everyone else is going to like, and and the album cover to me was, you know, I remember the Beatles album cover, I remember, the, I remember um, Sticky Fingers, the Rolling Stones cover mm. that, that Andy Warhol did, and every great artist, this is the interesting thing, but Jean Michel, Andy Warhol, believe Salvador Dali have all done an album cover at some point. So so it transcended beyond commercial art and it went into fine arts, and 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 you got a lot of these great artists like Warhol in particular doing these great covers so there was it was a canvas and and it was something that was really um the size of it was perfect you know it, 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 like i say cds kind of started to destroy that a little bit because it became this plastic world was fine and one of the reasons that whenever i worked with a band that was big enough i always asked for a gatefold sleeve because i wanted to have as much information as you could and 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 all the things that you could connect together and Knowing that people went to people's houses and you know they'd say, oh, you know, I've got the new NXS cover album. Yeah, come over to my house; I'll play it to you. Mm. Um, it was. It became a social gathering, and it, and and you know, the, the, as much as you know, we just went through this just a few minutes ago with technology. When te- technology works, it's great. But when it fails, it's it's a it, it's terrible. And and know, yeah, Photoshop was a revelation. But if you have any problems with it, it's a nightmare. So, um, you know, this is this is what. Um, this is what the world was like before the computer age, and this is what it took to actually sit down with a with, a, with some artboard, some some um, um, wax, you know, hot
1: wax, a scalpel blade, and you'd have to sit physically put these things together. So it was a very um, organic process doing an album cover. Most definitely, and and one of the album covers that that you you talked a lot about the Clash. One of the single covers, and I, I agree with you about the single cover, the the forty five. Um. The Tommy Gun single. Looking back yeah. at that one, it's got you know obviously got the Middle Eastern newspaper on there and images of violence. And I, I want to chat a bit about that because it's still relevant all these decades later. When you when you put that together, did you did you have any idea that the you know the same sort of t- turmoil would be would be present all these decades later? Well, interestingly enough, that was at art
2: school, nineteen seventy six, and it was it was the time of the Iranian Revolution, mm. and and um. Yeah, the Khomeini came in and the Shah was, I met mean, a lot of Persian, Iranians that came to our art school, so, and then also I was living in London and there was the IRA and there was bombs going off all over the place. So so I think Europeans really have always understood that, 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 that sense of un, civil unrest, of, of, of political violence and, and demonstration. I went on the Rock Against Racism march from Trafalgar from Square to Victoria Park in Eastern London with the clash headline. And, and that was a protest that actually did help to change things because what was happening in London at the point black they had a law called sus which was suspect under suspicion so basically the police could arrest anybody just if they suspected them and it was ending up being mainly black men that was being arrested and so we helped to sort of change that by going on those marches but but that cover that that actually was more poor really because paul paul, paul put the paul pulled the images of the of the of the newspaper and i basically did the logo the tommy gun logo and we, but but well i did like the collaboration and it because you know really the class started off doing their own things they just got they couldn't do it all like bernie would make them paint their equipment and everything it just got too big for them so we were just this kind of helpers that would come in and and put it all together and and you know so they were very much involved with the conceptual side of anything that, 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 that they did and and um were actively involved so that was the interesting about that was it was very much paul's thing Mm. and and, um and yeah the like i say i think yeah i've always been aware because i lived in london and i lived i heard the the regent's park bomb go off which blew up all these soldiers that um, killed 30 odd soldiers and and so we were very aware in london that you never left a package around and and then there was this this was just the beginning of the Middle Eastern crises that were going on, and, mm. and then just yeah, the 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 the, the um, wars in Israel and everything. So, so when we had a huge Arab population in London, it's probably one of the biggest in Europe. And, and so, and, and because of these Persian students, I was very aware of of the civil unrest that had gone on and the dangers of, of having um, the West put in these dictators as as, as heads of state. Uh, because you know what you're going to get out of it is you're going to get worse than you started with in the beginning. So I was, yeah. So, so I was aware. I didn't realise this day, forty almost forty years later, it would still be pretty much in the same position. I mean, you know, obviously New Zealand had that thing that happened recently. Yeah. Australia's been pretty clear of all that kind of stuff. Um, but then I did meet a guy called Jeff Pope, who was one of the he was one of the next security guards and he was also an ex member of the Australian version of the SAS. And that guy was a tough motherfucker, that <laughs> <laughs> way. So 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 but but yeah, I mean there's been there's obviously civil unrest everywhere and, and, and but but you know Australia's been relatively lucky in terms of, of not having to do that and I never actually thought they would um, be anything happening in the end this because it is so fucking far away and, <laughs> and New Zealand in particular I mean I went to New Zealand because I went to speak down there at a creativity conference and, and New Zealand is so far he, he, that, there was a show here in, in, in um it's very funny um called the John Oliver John Oliver show and he's a distinguished guy he's on HBO and he did this thing with Russell Crowe he had this thing he found the jockstrap that Russell Crowe roaring in um, yes
1: something or <laughs> gladiator or something, something. Right? yeah
2: yeah it was brilliant uh, um, but they also point out this thing that, that a lot of maps forget to put New Zealand on it. And and, and I thought that was hilarious. I mean, not, 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 I, I mean I love New Zealand. I think it's a great place. And I love Australia, too. But I just thought it was very odd that New Zealand is so far away that people actually forget. It, there was an airport that didn't have a map of New Zealand on it. It showed all these cases where
0: New Zealand <laughs> is not on the map. So I, so for that something as tragic to happen as what happened recently, mm. based off of what's coming out of this country and the political politics of hate that's coming out of this country,
2: that surprised me. Um, but yeah, I, I would have thought by now, I mean, terrorism back in the 60s was almost a noble cause. I mean, because it was the IRA winning sort of, you know, one island. Not that I, you know, I believe that violence does that. And they, ultimately, they had a relationship with the police where they let the police know where there was a bomb. Yep. And there was a the meinhof gang in Germany, and it was a Red Army. And, and they would hijack planes, and it was very rarely this this covert. I'm not saying it was good. I'm, you know, all terrorism is bad, but 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 generally it was a, you know, Mick, 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 Mick Joe Strummer used to wear um, a Brigade Rossa, the Italian one, on his on his t-shirt, the star on a, and a and a, and a, um, a condition of rifle on it. So so yeah, there's been this, political, but but yeah, it's a good question actually. But yeah, I'm, it it does create. Creativity in its own weird way. Mm. It does give political things to to um, to play around with, and uh, you know, um, so that yeah, basically, yeah. i, I I'm basically no. I'm not surprised it's still going on. <laughs> you know, I, but I didn't realise it would be. I thought some of it we would be in the position we are now. But but yeah, yeah. Um, it wasn't a prediction by any
1: means. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, yeah it, looking back, it seemed like a a, a strong prediction. But look, let's. Let's jump a little bit around. Let's, let's jump to, to Bow Wow Wow, if we can, and uh, Sea Jungle, Sea Jungle, which caused a lot of controversy. Uh, obviously, a recreation of the Manet painting, The Luncheon on the Grass, um, with 14-year-old um, Annabella um, naked yeah. on the cover. Whose idea was, was that? It was I, – I
2: I, the irony was that I was at EMI with Bernie Rhodes with Texas Minute Runners, mm. and um, Bow Wow Wow were also on EMI. And I met Malcolm, Bernie introduced me to Malcolm, and Malcolm and, I, I met Malcolm and I started a fantastic long-standing creative relationship. Again, never once did he ask me, can I see your portfolio? <laughs> there was, and that, that question, I, I didn't even know what a portfolio was. It was just like I was the right guy in the right place with the right a- attitude, and and, and and that was what was important to that movement. didn't matter. didn't want to know about your background. In fact, what you did last was totally irrelevant to what you wanted to do now. So I met Malcolm and he sparked up and he gave me this whole um, first time I met him about how the album cover was dead, how videos were going to be the new thing. So he was totally ahead of his time, out, 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 pirating off the radio, taping off the radio, again, miles, miles, miles ahead of his time mm. on, on, on everything. Yeah, so he, he, he predicted all that and said, the album cover's going to be, yeah, you know, it's going to be a token thing in the future. But while while we've still got them, I've got a new album album coming out, blah, 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 and we want to do something. And he said, one of the things I'm thinking about doing is recreating a classic painting. So he and I went and we went to the National Gallery, and we we really did work a lot on research, because I still believe that research is the most important thing. And what I don't think that the young people today get is how important research is and how lucky they are Mm. to have this – Resource—it's—I mean, I to have to go to a fucking library, and I have to borrow a book, and I have to take Xerox copies. Everything is out there; it's, it's accessible. this so my kids see the my kids see the computer as a game thing, and I see it as a it's massive, fantastic access to everything there is. So, so it's a different perception, I think, on what what oh, the internet is is used for. Most definitely. And um, now, um, so we researched, and it came down between three paintings it was it was the bolt by um oh what's the name of the painting i remember the name of the artist did the bolt and it was a picture of a, of a woman reaching up and a, and a man trying to try to stop her from unbolting this thing and then the other one was uh, liberty leads the people which is a Delacroix painting of the of liberty with her breast out and a french flag standing over and that was my choice that would have been my choice and then the manet painting and you know what, we, 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 to be honest, and, and all truthfulness, we weren't thinking about the controversy. It wasn't, let's do something controversial. It was the furthest thought from our mind. Mm. It was, what's going to have an impact? You know, we didn't also realize that this would become a very sensitive issue because in a lot of cases it's considered child pornography, which I think is absolutely ridiculous because we never had any thoughts that this was in any way titillating or yeah. or, or sexual. It was, a, it was a statement. It was a statement of, of morals. It was a statement of... of yeah, to, the, to you know, Napoleon's day, it was controversial, but not ironically controversial because of the um, naked woman, but because of the the technique in which Manet painted it. It was considered crude. Mm. And if you want, I don't know if you've been on my if you go on my website, you can see um, I've got an article I did with I was working with Urban Outfitters, and, and I did an interview, and we talked about that. And I just said I think it's more conservative now than it was in nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty, we've been through the Sex Pistols. We had t-shirts with naked cowboys on we had had swastikas with jesus i mean we we we, the late 70s pushed it to the absolute fucking maximum so by the time the 80s came on nobody really cared about it anymore it's more controversial now because of this child pornography thing and i understand that because there was a lot of shit that went on back in those days that but this by no means would and it may be considered that now maybe i'd have been arrested because of it but but um the only reason we were going to be arrested was was because it, it was a it was a minor in a public place, and, mm. and they did have a warrant out for Minor Malcolm's arrest over there. But um, but I managed to get to Amsterdam and have Annabella sign an affidavit saying she gave court on her sixteenth birthday gave full consent to it. So, but never at any point did we ever think that this was something that was like like sexually perverse or or or, or, or even considering that it was everything was about the idea and mm. the idea was. That, that um you know the morals of the world have not changed in 200 years and in fact if anything they, the world has become more morally corrupt than it ever was and that's evident in the pornography chain mm. uh trade which is as big in this country as any other industry but then it's christianity sort of thing that goes on parallel with it so there's this massive amount of hypocrisy so so no but but um and we yeah, we, we did we did that when Andy O was a photographer and we went to um, a park and we set it up perfectly and, and it and it ended up being and, and I said to Malcolm, listen, the only way this is gonna work is if we don't have any if we don't have any type on it. it doesn't become a painting if it's got a type on the cover. It's, mm. If we want to treat it like a painting. We shouldn't have type on it. And do, and believe it or not, because of that, RCA Records tried not to pay me. Because they said they didn't have any type on the front. Wow. Even though I did the whole thing in art directed I did get paid in the end, but that was their philosophy. Well, there's no type on the cover because they hated the idea there was no type on the cover. And that works for me. And actually, in 1986, I went down to Australia with Malcolm to the Sydney Biennale. And we, um, based on that cover, and Malcolm and I kind of saw this big print of it on the wall in the New South Wales Gallery. And we were like, something a bit odd about this because. What is it? It's a photograph. Well, I didn't take the photograph, and Malcolm wasn't the artist. So we kind of felt like we were charlatans. So <laughs> what we decided to do was I went and got a big a can of um, yellow pink uh, spray paint, and I spray painted on the walls of the New South Gallery a Baroque frame around the picture, bright pink. And Malcolm and I, did, we decided to make it, we're only in it for the Manet, was a bad pun, and then we made it to a merchandising stand. So we had T-shirts there. So we made it into this. We turned it into this rock and roll thing, and and we met. Luckily, to met and he was a great and fantastic person. And I love the guy to this day. Even though he passed away was Brett Whiteley, who I think is yes. one of the most incredible artists ever. And and Brett. And another guy called Johnny Lewis who's a friend of mine. Is a photographer. Did all the Bondi Junction, Bondi pictures, and and the um and yep. the Aboriginals. Uh, he was a good friend of mine. And and Martin Sharp. And there was and they were called the Yellow House. And, and um that that collection. Of, and it's and I think it's sad that Brett Whiteley doesn't have the international recognition he deserves. Because not easy. He, he just was one of the and I, he and I became very close over the years. And and I love his art. I think his art is absolutely spectacular. Lavender Bay and the cricket match are just just incredible paintings yes but he tagged on to me and malcolm and and yeah you know, brett was old school he was like a bit of a philanderer and and um <laughs> you know we had all these people in the audience of yeah, politically correct people who were accusing us of um of, of um of uh, uh, um exploitation and, and all music's exploitation and all art is exploitation in some degree but Malcolm said, and it was brilliant, and Brett loved it, it was like, there's nothing wrong with a naked woman. And and it's true, it's like artists paint, and painted and drawn and sketched and sketched, and Brett was one of the best sketches of nudes I've ever seen. People got stuck stop, stop getting so uptight about what everything means. You know, it's, it's not meant to be taken that seriously. It's for people to enjoy. If people want to get uptight about it, that's their, that's their business. But to come and heckle yeah. and throw things and be... That without knowing what the real truth was behind it, so that trip to Australia. First of all, it, it, it made me love Australia, and and and, um, <laughs> and because I loved the attitude of the people, and it was because again you're so far you're so far away. There's this kind of fuck you attitude to everything, and and Brett and Johnny and Martin Sharp were the people that I met, and I just thought these guys are f- f- fucking fantastic, and and they were such a huge part of Australian culture, and, mm. and um you know but Brett in particular, wonderful, wonderful person and, and a great loss I think and great tragedy that he's gone and uh and his studio I used to go to his studio a lot with the matchsticks outside and 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 there's an a- aspect of it I miss but but yeah my, my love for Australia came from that trip and, and um and I was desperate to go back and then I uh, went back obviously with in excess.
1: Yes, you, you you most definitely did. But before we get to in excess, you you've talked a lot about Malcolm McLaren um and yeah. you did the duck rock artwork yeah. and once again, ahead of his time, Malcolm, in in regards to being the sort of creator of the music without performing on the music, and and the Duck Rock artwork, you know, really foreshadowed what was coming in in where you live now in in uh, in America and in New York in particular. It was it was really ahead of its time again. How did um you know it, it mixed you know the sort of hip hop elements and then collage that that you spoke about earlier? How um. How how did that all come about? And and once again, was it you know was it a real collaboration on the artwork between you and Malcolm?
2: Well, well first of all, there's, and if, if anyone listens to this, wants to look at, it, I was inducted into the album cover Hall of Fame, mm. because there is such a thing as, and and within that, they asked me to do an interview about the record cover, and I did it about Duck Rock, and it, so there's is it, it, it's, it's a and it's a great, it's a great article, and it's on my website. But basically, what happened was. We we're in New York at a time where, and the, I, the interesting thing about it is that this is something that's forgotten. A lot of people, the punk scene kind of moved to New York. So, you have Mick Jones from the Clash, you have Bernie Rose, Malcolm, myself—all these punk kind of Cosmo Vinyl—all in New York at the time. Hip hop was starting to come through, and the two people that ran a place called Negril in Manhattan, which is where they had the first hip hop artists playing, were also English. Um, I met a guy called Michael Holman, who was a black filmmaker, very intellectual man, brilliant person, complete inspiration. Knew all these people, knew Tony Shafrazi, who was Ken, uh, who was um, Keith Haring's uh, uh, gallery owner. None of these people at this point were famous. It was, it was, so, but because I went out and because I knew these people, and I went to nightclubs and started to meet people. I went to the Grill and then went to the Roxy. I did that more than Malcolm did. But, yeah, we. Wanted to incorporate, we knew that we wanted to incorporate some of what was going on. We mm. didn't know quite how, but the names at the time were Keith Herring and Donnie White, both graffiti artists, both in a different vein. Keith was the doorman at a club called the Mud Club at the time, um, and Donnie White was a classic railroad car graffiti So, So we knew we wanted an element of that, in it, but we didn't know how. And it's interesting you should say about Malcolm because the record company then was saying, Malcolm, you haven't performed on the record. How we can't get a Malcolm McLaren record because you have a song on it and he sung well, he went and did things on Soweto and he did duck rock. But how different is it now where well, the DJ is mm. an artist? He doesn't have, he's the artist, but he never sings on the record. So Malcolm McGain was ahead of his time. He was using music and we, we were in the right place at the right time. I remember walking down through the streets of New York and I came into Washington Square Park and this, to this day, it, it, the one thing in my mind that blew me, absolutely blew me away was seeing these kids breakdancing. I mean, I just could not comprehend it, how, how, what an impact they made on me, seeing these kids spinning on their heads. I mean, <laughs> everybody knows what it is now, but imagine you've never seen that before. Imagine that. And then you suddenly see this kid spinning on his head. He's 14 years old. And then that was the thing that got me and Malcolm too. So we, we saw it, Malcolm and I were very, very collaborative. Malcolm, but and Malcolm was a was a stylist. In fact, he could see and work things out and place things together that didn't necessarily work. So, it, for example, with with um, Buffalo Girls, it was explained to me. I said, "How can you?" Because he was doing this thing in the Bluegrass Mountains and 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 this hillbilly music. I said, "How can you put rap from New York with 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 square dancing?" And he said, "If you listen to it." It's exactly the same. Mm. He says, square dance is a cause. Cool. It's like, everybody take your partner by the hand and do see do your partner and then rap is like, everybody in the house say, yeah, yep. they're instructional. So they're both these instruction. and I just thought that was genius and and that's how, that's how um, Buffalo Girls came together and to give credit to, to Trevor Horn, he did a fantastic job in putting that together. Um, so the artwork, I kind of felt, it was the one time I felt like I have no control over this. I'm going to let it happen. I'm going to get, and, and I liken it to if you put a poster up on the wall in a subway station. Someone comes along and sticks another poster on it. Someone comes along and writes on it. Someone comes along and tries to tear it down. Someone, and, and it keeps it keeps organically growing into something that it didn't start to be. That's how the Duck Rock cover came along. It was literally as if I stuck it up on the wall, and then people came along. We got the the main illustration from Keith Haring for for a thousand dollars, which is. A, nothing uh, donny white did the, the, the um the duck rock logo and the one thing that malcolm brought back to me from his trips around latin america and to south africa was how the in, the indigenous peoples of these different places or the or the what were were into this customizing thing so in cuba they customized their cars and their antennas and everything like that in um in africa they customise themselves by taking spoons and making spoons into jewellery. It's a brilliant concept. Mm. And in New York, they were customising their ghetto blasters, so they were sticking extra antennas on it. So that, we thought that's what we should make. The, the ghetto blaster in New York was the, was, the, was the thing. People would carry those things, gigantic things, some of them, on their shoulders, full volume walking down the street and put them in. And, and that, was the, that was the way you conveyed music. You conveyed it by taking it around out to the street with you. And, and so we thought let's um, let's combine those things into this let's bring the world into this let's make a world ghetto blaster and, and so we did the antennas the horns from Africa the antennas that represented Latin America and the customers and the scooters in London you know the mods and 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 then with the graffiti on the front so it's New York and we put that on the we put that on the cover and that was key because when Malcolm went to South Africa he took the Ghetto Blaster with him, and it became this deity to these these these, these um, Zulu tribes who were wow. sort of like, it's like a deity, and they would sit around it. And it, music came out and said it was a fantastic, it, you know, as a concept for an album, mm. it, it worked on every level. So, my thing was trying to piece it all together, and I was struggling with it because. I was rushing with it. I was waiting and waiting. It was like trying to get stuff, trying to get Keith Haring to get together. I was in New York for six weeks trying to push, get this, these bits and pieces. And so <laughs> by the time it came to put it together, I had no time. So I was quickly pushing within,
1: with not the with not the facilities we have today. And when the when the proof came back, I hate. I actually hated the cover. Wow. I I, well, because I didn't like
2: the colors first of all, because because uh, the proof came back, it wasn't the right color. I just and, and, and so I was like, it looked a mess. It didn't look right. This. And I remember at the time, I told Malcolm, I said, you know what, I'm actually getting bored with doing album covers, because that square is so limiting, and he Mm. said this thing to me, which I'll always remember, it was one of the greatest inspirational things anyone's ever said to me, was, well don't imagine this, imagine this is a big canvas up on the wall, and you just take a square out of that canvas, and if my name isn't fit on it, that's, that's good, that is, that's part of that canvas, it gives people's imagination to, and I thought to, to, an, to somebody like myself at that age, it was about 22 years old, what a brilliant thing to say to someone. Forget the square. Mm. Just take the square as part of the big picture and, and let people imagine what was around it. And that's what, exactly what I did. So that's why his name is not on half of it is off the front. That's all done on purpose. Um, wow. So, it, so I kind of was trying to collapse this mess of information that was going on because you had... You had the the, the the Keith Herrings, the Dundee White's. You've got the hip hop kids. You've got the b boys. You've got you've got the, the the world side of it, and and so it was becoming this mess. And so when it came out, I, I had no I couldn't change it. I had no time to change it. I was really unhappy with it in the beginning because just just it took me some time to realise that probably of all the covers I've done, it is the greatest of all the covers I've done, just because. It wasn't just me it, it, it evolved in itself I was basically the conduit in which it passed through so as I said it was like sticking a your artwork up on a wall and then people try and take something down or like the graffiti on it they stick another poster on it they stick another thing or the spray can and that's exactly what the cover and you I mean in that respect you hit home, I hit a home run with that because yeah. it absolutely does, did say New York and it's in the permanent collection at the Museum of Modern Art um, and I used every aspect of the creativity that Malcolm was involved in. Malcolm wasn't involved with the cover at all; just basically approved it. But we always conceptualize. Malcolm always let me go off and do what I wanted to do. We talked about conceptualised about it, and then I went off and did it, and, and that was it. I never asked to look at proofs or
1: anything like that. So, so he was very trusting with mm, that. I was going to say it's a lot of trust in in that relationship, and uh, you know, you know, and and that album cover really did open. The world up to to allow i mean it's amazing how art can influence the world and you sort of did it with the the clash and all of those guys and dex's midnight runners and then you did it again with with this one because it opened up the world to to be accessible to the beatbox and the you know and all of those elements that you incorporated in that and it, it allowed you know even what you were saying with public enemy to be able to uh to borrow the, um, the target I mean it's it's sort of incredible when you look back at it now how one thing influenced the other
2: well interesting because you're never aware of that at the time you never think that and I, and I think that the one thing I do remember saying to Malcolm I need to I need to be involved in this scene mm. I can't be this 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 appropriator of culture and come in and snatch it and run off again I need to be in it and part of it which I was for six weeks I went to nightclubs I went I went to try and find Keith Haring I was Michael Holman was introducing me to this person, and so I, I really did become embroiled in, in, in into this scene that was happening, and going to nightclubs, and going to the Roxy, and yeah, and and, and seeing where the culture came from. And so this was just almost like, this was like like um, a, 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 a word association that was happening with the covers. I said, like, oh, "Okay, grab that, put that there. Grab that, put that there. Mm. Grab that, put that there." And just was throwing it down without even thinking about the design. And and, and and i wanted it to be i wanted it to be totally authentic to not just to new york but to the world of which this album came from like like soweto and the african zulu tribes and and i wanted it to, to to i always wanted it to look like it wasn't done by anybody i wanted it to almost look like it was just evolved and, and for, like i say at first on a, on, a, on a purely on a judgment of colors and not being it wasn't the right color on the front and it was it was too pink and there was <laughs> there was issues like, but now even that to me now is what worked because when you do put artwork up in the subway, you have no control of what happens to it after you've done it mm. I mean, So people can do whatever they want to it so so that in itself was a, was a success and it probably i mean i've been very lucky i've got two three covers that i will say were always always people going about and written about and articles about are the are the um Bow wow World cover the um duck rock cover and the in excess cover and and they, those are the three covers that, that that i've always been asked about and and are the ones that are the most probably respected of all the things i've done and and um and they're never and and you know what they are they they always come from a very instinctive there's times when i'm like okay here's the job i have gotta do this and there's other times when i've just got a feeling about it and mm-hmm. and and it just comes out and, and that was the case in all pretty much all three of those covers so um but yeah, it was it was a, a brilliant um but you know what the cover would never work without the music, which is the interesting thing. It's like you can't, album cover can't be better than music on it, because it's just that's useless. So, you know, the, the fact this music was so radically different and no one had ever heard it before. I mean they had heard it in terms of context of, of, of um, ethnic music, but put into this modern kind of sense, and we were right at the birth, beginning of the hip hop thing, it was Brilliant
1: and the cover reflected that. It most you know, it most definitely and, did and, and you you've mentioned in excess and we'll we'll jump yeah. we'll jump to in excess and and uh, kick obviously I mean out here in Australia you walk in record stores, you walk everywhere and you still see the kick the kick post and the kick artwork and you know their manager has been fantastic Chris yeah. Murphy at, at reinventing yeah. that band even even though Michael yeah. Hutchins has passed. Now kick is is incredible. X is to me, sort of a bit of an extension of the kick artwork yeah. is that is that a fair agree, yeah. fair thing to yeah, say? Yeah, no,
2: absolutely, absolutely. And I actually prefer the X cover, but but um, but, kick. but it, this is what happened with Kick. It was it was like I never heard of an excess. I was living in New York, and it wasn't after the Malcolm thing. A good friend of mine and I walking down the street. She's an English girl. living lived in Australia, and I heard I came here and need you tonight. Not need you tonight. I mean, um, what you need. Mm. And, and yeah, at this point, this was a rock, a fucking rocky sounding dance record. And I said to her, I remember saying to Ali, I love that record. I said, this is the best record. She goes, oh, that's, that's funny, that's, that's Michael, that, he's a friend of mine. And she, and I said, oh really? And she goes, yeah, and you know what, he's playing, at, they're, they're playing at Madison Square Garden in a couple of weeks or something, do you want to go? And I said, yeah, she, goes, she says to I me, mean, you and Michael will get on great. So I went to the thing now, this is the thing about NXS, I, what I looked at, I, I looked at this. I looked at the previous record covers. I looked at the videos, and I couldn't tell who the singer was. Mm. I mean, I couldn't tell what the band was. If you look at the "What You Need" video, it's very confusing, and they've all got this hair. And, and so, I didn't get that sense of identity of what the ba- what the band. They were very Aussie. I knew that. I knew that. I knew that this and that piece was a, was a very Australian and very that Australian desert. And there was something to be said for that. When I met them, the nicest guys in the, in the world, you know. Mm. When I met them, and Michael loved to to, to really accentuate the Oz in it. Good You know, <laughs> you know he'd say that. But he didn't speak like that. He spoke almost in English. But, but he loved to play. And he, and he was very proud to be Australian. Anyway, so, so I met him and I met them. And me and Michael kind of went out that night. We ended up staying up till six in the morning. We went out to these after-hours clubs and we were rotten the next day. But, but um, I said to him, I'd love to do your record cover because i think i've got an idea for what, what what i think could take you to the next level and he goes oh, that'd be great he goes i'd love you to do that i a week later i was in la because i was working with psychedelic furs and i and i went to see the i went to see the band and this is um important The band ultimately and to this day it's a very emotional thing when i when i when i was walking to the greek theater because i was late getting there and they were playing um um don't change i heard that song coming mm. and i just thought this is a Fucking beautiful record. It's a bit and and song. It was piping up the uh, up the canyon. And I went to see Michael. Michael was one of these people that, yeah, everything's great. Yeah, come down to Sydney. Yeah, fantastic. What I realized much later was Michael never told anyone I was coming. So I, started, <laughs> so I'd done, I booked a flight down to, to Sydney. I didn't have anywhere to stay, and he said I could stay with him in Kirribilli, a place in Kirribilli, and him and John Ferris had this duplex. And, and he'd just broken up with his girlfriend, Michelle. And and so I arrived in Sydney. Second time only, I kind of find my way out to Michael, and then he said, and then the next day, this year the next day, he said, I want you to get up. let's go. To the, I'm going to Ranosaurus to studio yesterday. Why don't you come with me? So this is what this is my memory of it. Here's Michael. He's got a skateboard. One of the first people that I've ever seen him with a skateboard, right? This is 1986, right? He's got a skateboard. <laughs> he's got a skateboard, and he's kind of skating down the road the hill, and he's waiting for me to catch up with him. And then we get to the ferry and then he gets on the ferry and I just noticed everybody's looking at him. I mean, I know that he was famous in Australia. He wasn't and this is my thing. When I was in New York with him, nobody knew who he was. But Richard Butler from the Circuit First, everybody knew who he was. And I said, that's weird because then it's just so many and I thought that's this guy is this guy is a fucking is a rock star. He's a rock star. So I remember going on the ferry with him and we went to run our studios and met the rest of the band. But they didn't know who the fuck I was or where I came from, what I was even doing there. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Nick's going to do the record and blah, blah, blah. blah. So I realised I hadn't told anyone. So I felt a bit stupid that I was there because I was like, the band don't know. Chris Murphy doesn't know. Nobody knows I'm there. But luckily I had a reputation. I had a good reputation. And everyone had heard of the covers I'd done. So, so it was like, great, mate. Easy. And they, they, those guys were so easygoing to work with what I did was I sat in the studio. This is something I did a lot with bands, and this is an artless loss now. What I realised, my, my role was really important because I was the first connection visually to the public from the studio. So if I'd sit in the studio, I'd get the energy of what the guys were doing. I'd see that they'd have, a, they'd have like a, a bulletin board that would tip the pictures and crazy headlines and Polaroids and shit all over this, this, this pin board. And, and I'd get a sense of the characters and I'd listen to the music. And that was really important because the first thing anyone was going to do was see something. Before they heard anything, they were going to see something. Mm. So that image was really important to capture people's imagination. So, So what I realized was this band... It's an international band, it's not It's not an Australian band, I mean it's an Australian band, but they've got to get over that, they, they need to go, they need to, they don't want to be men at work. No. You know, I mean that was, my. and I hated men at work, and Michael was But I just thought that's, that's the Aussie cliche, and they they, they they want to be Australian and proud, but they also want to be international, and that's what I thought of this cover, this is a, this is a, this should be clean, complete opposite of what I've been doing up to that point, very clean, very fashion almost, very Italian vogue, the photographer at the time was all about white, white, white side backgrounds. And we need, I need to push this guy, Michael, but I also understand it's a band. So I can't have Michael on the cover. I knew that before I even talked to him about it. I just, I can't do it. But so I had this interesting thing of creating this forced perspective as if they're standing on that, on, on the stage together with a gatefold. Mm. So that, so that Michael was on the front, but he was half of his face on the front. But John Farris is the only one pulling on the front, and then and then I watched it from there. So right around, So when you opened it up, it created a thing. The two things that came out of that I didn't realize how phenomenally successful it was going to be in terms of. And, and there's no doubt that the album was the key because it was a brilliant album. But there's also no doubt that the the, the album cover helped that by the fact that Richard Lernstein took the album cover as a way of opening up the Need You Tonight song video. Mm which ended up winning the 7MTV award. So what my justification... Cause Chris Murphy hated
1: the cover. Really? He didn't want to... Well, because they had Michael on it. And what I realized later was that no, they
2: didn't want to promote Michael because they, they because they realized Michael was their one commodity. And if Michael left, they would be screwed. So I said to Michael at the time, because I gave my, Michael a co-concept credit with it, I told him I wanted him to be actively involved because he, he loses interest in stuff really quickly. I, I got him to really... Invest himself in some of the decision making. So when it came to Chris Murphy trying to say he wants to scrap the cover and do it again, Michael said no. He actually said no. This is what I want, and the band backed Michael up. And so we we um I won that victory. And about a year later, when they were being given the multi platinum records, at at a hotel in in LA, when in front of everybody, they got the records, and Michael said to Chris Murphy, "Where's next? Where's next multi platinum cover?" Uh, record and chris Murphy sort of gave me his which is later i did get one of those because michael absolutely saw the value and what that did in making him mm. and the band the superstars they became i mean at the one point they were the biggest band in the world along with you too there was no question about that they i saw the hysteria i saw that i saw the um i saw the, them going from you know being big stars in Australia to being sort of relatively you know in the rest of the world, big in, big in America, but not huge, mm. to being the biggest band and, and seeing the, the fruits of my labor with that cover based on being in the studio with them, based on knowing each guy in the band, based on hearing them talk, based on many, many things that, that put that together. And that was an instinctive thing I had right from the get-go was that this has to look like this band could be from anywhere. It could be from London, they could be from New York, it could be from Berlin, it could be from anywhere. In, they're, they're Australian, but that is just a coincidence. These, this, this is an, an international band. Now, Michael was an international, so the rest of the band weren't. They were, and I love them for that. They're Aussie boys, and they, and they just want to live in Australia, with their farms or whatever it is. And they, that was their downfall in the end, I think. Yeah. I think um, unlike you two, who became a, a, a bigger band and overtook them eventually. They recorded in Berlin. They, they went all over the place. You know they. In excess wouldn't leave Australia. They recorded all their records in Australia. They never got any inspiration outside of it. They didn't want to get any inspiration, but Michael did. And that's what, in the end of it all, Michael was the star. And that's what, Yeah, ultimately, I saw it coming way early that he was going to, you know, walk away from the band. He, you know, it, it ran its course. And unfortunately, it ran its course in a tragic way. But, yeah. but um, yeah, So, you, and you're absolutely right. When it led to... Um, X was the next inst- inst- installment of that, but I knew in this case I had to have them all on the cover. And trying to get a band photograph, five people, because literally i left Kirk and Andrew standing waiting for them, and then I'd be trying to get other guys. But by the time I've got two others, Kirk and Andrew left. That? So <laughs> just from that point of view, and there's always going to be two people that don't look very good in the picture, so I scrapped that idea completely. i always wanted to make it into... So I could focus on each person and then collage collage together. together. Yep. And that was more like, that, that, that cover was the, the sort of part two of them saying, we are now superheroes. You know, we're, we, we, we did this cover and now we, we've, we've done some and we're like these superheroes. Because at that point, they almost were like superheroes. So that cover almost was like a, a comic book thing. And the, even the word X, which I had some involvement on, because it was a time of ecstasy. X is also ten years, and we'd have been together for ten years. So X men had a lot of different meanings to it, and, and I love the simplicity of it. But with Michael's ring, you know, like we're here, we've made we're here now we're these kind of we're the superheroes of rock and roll. Yeah, it wasn't that obvious, but that was the sort of leaning I had towards it. And they looked like invincible, and they mm. like, yeah, you no, know, and that was that was purposely done as as being part two of of. Um, and also, I was very cautious to make sure that everyone in the van was on the cover. And uh, as opposed to last time. So so it was a conscious and I did get and I don't know if you ever saw it, but I did get them to do a three D pop up yes, version of I it.
1: I saw that. I, I saw that.
2: I've still got that time. But but yeah. then and because you know, that was right at the beginning when albums were starting to be taken over by six C D, so I wanted it to be I, I want I definitely didn't want it to be that plastic jewel case thing. Didn't mm. want that because it took away the personality. I mean it wasn't they didn't do it because It was a limited edition, but it was great. So, and we had a big poster inside it, and those are the days of those are the days when yeah, my name combined with a big band could get anything we wanted. Mm. You know? and, and so and it was great. And you know, you never really thought that was ever going to end, but it did. And no, thanks to iTunes, really, <laughs> it sort of killed it all off. It did. And I met Robert Condrick, the guy that founded iTunes. I met him at a dinner party at John Taylor's, and I and, and he lives close to me. When he's staying down in LA, and we, me and my wife, invited him and his wife over for tea, and and he came over. And he's very surly, very kind of like non-emotional guy. and And I realised I looked at the guy, and he goes, "I'm sitting with the devil here because this is the guy that wants to destroy the DVD. They, they, yeah, they wanted to destroy CDs, of which they did because they took the CD thing out of their computer, so you couldn't even put CDs in. And they wanted you to download all this shit." Yep. And, and you didn't get anything for it. You got some little patch shot of a cover. There was no, there was no, it wasn't tactile anymore. It was impersonal. It was, it was distant. It had no, there was no kind of like discovery involved in it. It was just as
1: planned. And you don't so, even own it. That's so it's, the, it's, that's it's, the worst part.
2: Yeah, you don't, exactly. Exactly. You don't own it. And, and so you can, you can play it whenever you want. But, but if your if computer goes, you, you know, you're going to be a hard time getting it all back. Yep. Whereas you can go down and pick up your record card but you have a relationship with an album cover i mean you do you have a relationship it sounds weird but you have a relationship because you do you, it's tactile you look at it you notice whether it's got a, it's got a gloss front or a matte front yes you know the texture of it's touching it sometimes you add embossing on it um and and, and that that was a great that was a great relationship you slid it out of the sleeve you looked at the sleeve match you might get a booklet in it it was it was like it was like a it was like a true gift when you got it. It was a it was a insight into the world of that particular band and and I think that people didn't really appreciate it until it had gone. And when I was asked, like in the late eighties, because they were, believe it, I'm not looking for people to direct videos because the music video scene was just beginning and they didn't have enough directors. And so they started to look outside of film people who film and go to photographers and designers like myself. I looked down on videos, and I and I and I refused to do them because I said, you know, that's just that, that's just something that you have no control over when you want to see it, and, and, and an album can be have a relationship with. But yeah, I got swayed, and then I went into the next sort of generation of cultural um, influence with videos. After that, you most you so, most um, most definitely yeah, did. But, so those, those
1: are the key albums. And so one other album that's sort of linked with that, and it's look. X was the first In Excess album that that I owned. I, I That was when I was coming into, you know, um, I was sort of 12 or 13. But then Max Q came along, and that album um, I became obsessed with. And I became obsessed okay. with it for a whole bunch of reasons. One, the album cover with the collage of each band member. Um, and secondly, the, the music itself. I could never actually tell exactly who all the band members were. You know, it soon came out it was Michael Hutchins. But even at the time, I remember people... People didn't quite get it. They they were like, right. is, "Is this sort of a soundbite they're using of Michael, or is this a band with Michael yeah. in it?" And, you know, was that was, all, that was all done on purpose? Yeah, of, of but, course. And was what was that album cover like to work on? Because because it really uh, swayed away from the superhero type type persona that um that Michael and yourself had created, right? Well,
2: it kind of it kind of followed on a little bit from X, but but um that. Is my one of my favorite covers. Mm. It's probably my second favorite cover after fans. I mean, I mean, sorry after after Duck Rock, because my yeah you know, Michael and Ollie Olsen. And I love Ollie, who, who's like a Melbourne. Yeah, yeah Ma, Ma, Michael always just say that Mel, 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 Melbourne is black, Sydney is white. Yep. It's like you know Sydney's very up and positive and sunny, and Melbourne's very black leather and rainy and and heroin and all that kind of stuff and. And, and Ali came from that scene where, and it was very much like London was in the late 70s, people living in squats, you know, um, dark. Michael, I mean, sorry, Michael went down and shot dogs in space with Richard. Mm. So, so But he hadn't finished because he loved Nick Cave and he he liked that dark side, but he wasn't dark. I mean, he was to a degree, but it wasn't. So um, when he, he won, he, he, okay, here's a good example. So he was in LA and he said, I'm going to come over and see because I'm going to talk to you about some stuff. So there's a knock on my door, and I open the door, and there's this guy standing with a pair of glasses and with his girlfriend. It was Michael. He cut all his hair off. You didn't <laughs> recognize him. So his one thing was his hair. This is what, But he was so over the superstar. He was so over that by the time Kick had kind of like runs Because I think I did – don't you Max Q before X? I can't remember actually what the chronology was. Yeah, yeah. That. Kik,
1: it was Kick, then then X, and then Max Q sort of straight okay. after. Yep.
2: So, so yeah, so basically he took off the Michael Hites thing, Working with Ollie, and you know, and they work well together. I mean, Ollie was lucky to have Michael, Michael's like to have Ollie. It was just one of those things that, 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 that m- Ollie didn't always like the rock, he didn't like the rock and roll because he had credibility and he didn't like the, the but he certainly didn't say no to them either. But, but, um, yeah, and he got to live, and, we, and I got to hang out with Ollie a lot, and I got to see Ollie's perspective because Michael wanted to make sure that it was. You didn't want to be isolated. It wasn't the Michael Hutchins solo album. So that was a conscious thing. So I came up with the idea of, of, of um, well, first of all, Ollie and the Dog called Max Q. And, and I thought, we thought that was a great name for the group. Max Q, it becomes this person. Mm. And this person is actually a, 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 an amalgamation of all of us together into one person. So, I, so we took those pictures and I divided them. And I wanted it to almost be criminal. In 1984, so I wanted to be like a photo identikit that I used to do at the police, where you just do an eye, there's the eyes, there's the mouth, there's the nose, mm. to make up a composite of who this guy Max Q was, and that's what it became, and, and the whole thing in the halo was very 1984, because in 1984 you see that head, and it's speaking out of people, but it's a floating head, mm. so Michael, I, believe, I believe in my memory, well, Michael is the is the left eye.
0: Wow, ah, right.
2: But but um, on the right it's, it's, the, it's one of the eyes anyway. And to me, I thought I thought that I, I was proud of myself on that. I thought that I, it, it looked and that was the first cover I did on the computer. Nice. I did it on a side machine, which was this huge lumbering thing, I believe it was an Israeli thing where I was blown away by it. I mean you sat down with sort of an engineer who had a pen and we could cut stuff out and it, we could we could make the cutouts look like they weren't cutouts and you could take this and put this in there. I was blown away by it. I mean, I was completely blown away but I thought all that time of me sitting down on a scalpel and cow gum or spray paint or whatever, that spray glue or whatever it was, um, the dirtiness of it, the, 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 you don't need to worry about this anymore. The problem was with the Cytex was it took like three hours to render everything you did. It, <laughs> took, it took three days. To do. So, so if you want to check... But it still had this, this thing that you'd never seen before, which is it took away the rough edges of, of everything. It made it look perfect,
0: which, which I like the idea of taking imperfect things and making them look perfect. So mm.
2: something like that isn't a perfect idea because I could have made the face into a face, but I wanted it to be separated into these things. So it's still imperfect, but it was perfect, if that makes sense. So next so cue is definitely, again, there's a record. It, it reflected where Michael was at the time. He wasn't looking for it. People think, oh, it failed. He wasn't looking for, he wasn't looking for selling millions of records. He wanted something that was credible. He wanted, he wanted Michael was desperate to be credible and and yeah, he was always, I think, a little bit put out that Nick Cave worked with Kylie and not with him, you know. Mm. And, and and so um and so he wanted to make this credible record and he had Lolly to, to make it, give it the credibility. And he was doing stuff that was like way ahead of its time. He was doing stuff mixes and and it, and it was and Way of the World is one of the great songs and, and you know, and I wasn't in the studio when they recorded that but they told me that Michael was in the studio and he took a microphone in the mixing room and he was, he was, he was singing it, moving around the studio and going up to it like it was on stage, which I always thought was great. It's mm. always those stories. So, um, so that's how that cover evolved. And it was a direct um, steal from station to station, David Bowie, the way David Bowie did the track, the Stingham, where all the words were together and it was yep. really simple. So I completely stole that from station to station. But, <laughs> but, but and also, Station Station had the similar feeling. It was almost alien, like so. So that was, um, yeah, the first cover I did on a computer. Um, yeah. So it was, again, it was a, it was a great because I started to get into the yeah the new sort of the newer things and and um, you know, pretty much what came after. That No more sitting down with um, with spray glue and and spray mount and and scalpels and and. Um, and all that kind, of, and overlays, you know, overlays and registration marks—a nightmare. It was all, it was all um, precision now. So that was great. So I could make punk do it yourself artwork in a precision way. <laughs> so if I'd have had that, that remote shirt might not have looked that much different, but it might have had a slightly different look to it. But it's still <laughs> The same basic approach to it.
1: So. And talking about that, what, what about these days? What do you prefer now? Do you, do you still work a lot with computers or? Or have you harked yeah. back more to more to the freestyle, you know, non-computer art? Well, you
2: know what, I've always I've always combined the two. I don't really respect computers, and I, I like to combine the two. And I, I went to New Zealand and I did a I spoke at a thing called the Incredible Edge, which is kind of like a creativity thing. It was great actually. It was like the TED conference, but without all the sponsorship and mm. there were some people from Apple there. And I talked about the strive for imperfection. In other words, the you know, the great artists from Da Vinci on were looking for perfection in art and they, they kind of almost attained it and I said, you know, we've we've attained the computers, we've got perfection, so let's start making it imperfect now. So so I do a little bit of a combination of two. And that, that's just uh, let's something now, I clean it up on photos. But Photoshop to me was the the same thing as video games for my kids. I, I remember I was doing a lot of videos and commercials and I had some time down and and I kind of so I'll give this a go, put myself Photoshop and, and and to me it was like oh my god, what a revelation this is unbelievable, I'm like, I could do in 30 minutes what would take me three days before like typesetting, you'd have to go to a typesetter. you have to get the thing back, if it wasn't right you You have to go to a stat shop to get the PMTs made, hmm. and if that wasn't right I'd have to walk, this I could do it oh, not right, and typesetting in particular was a revelation, and, and so I was just like a kid, you know, for the first time I, 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 so I started to do just stuff, just because I wanted to do it. Experiment, I experimented with every single thing that you can do on Photoshop to see what it did and 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 I kinda because of what I've been through, I got I got it immediately. Okay, this is what it did if instead of having a scalpel, I can use this tool. And so I just did stuff and then a friend of mine said, Oh, you should show I've got a friend who has a t shirt company, you should show and this guy Yoshi Yamamoto, who had a company called Two K T-shirts, mm. came and he bought ten of these ideas. and And I had a T-shirt, a quite successful T-shirt collection with Two K and my own label. And, and so T-shirt to me, in the new album covers, it's, it's, there's no rules to it. You can do whatever you want. It's big. It's like big, and and and, and people still uh, um, cover T-shirts. I mean, I've worked on this T-shirt over 25 years, and I won't throw it right away. So, so it's kind of it's taken over as the as the sort of replacement, if you like, of what the album cover meant to people. But you can wear it, and and, and I like to overprint, or do this, or put on the inside of it. Or, so so I've still got that basic. philosophy when it comes to T-shirts, and and I'm, I've worked with a couple of fashion designers online. So and I still do album covers. In fact, I just cover for. Um, I was on the board of at the Grammys as a governor, and for two years, and it was a big experience. I sat up with different people from the creative side of music, and we sat down and we discussed how. We could make music and help improve people's lives. And the president of the program is a woman called Mindy Abair, and she is um, the world's preeminent jazz saxophone player.
0: Okay.
2: And, and she plays – but she played with Aerosmith, and she played with Duran Duran, and she's a fantastic person. So I just did her cover, and, it, and it's kind of like it's, – it's very much like X. I mean, sorry, I need you tonight. But, but it's kind of a little bit more dense and organic looking.
1: It is absolutely really. – it's absolutely incredible your your career, Nick, and and how you've created all these styles. Um, look, we are we are running out of time. I wanted to ask you two questions to finish off, yeah. if that's okay. Um, and I ask sort of everyone these questions. Number one is: is there an album cover out there that you wish you had created? Is there something you look at and think, "Gee, I wish I'd done that." Hmm,
2: good question. Um. David Barber, I think about the, the covers he did in the Aladdin Saint. If you look at it, it's got some similarity to what I do, the very stark white side of it. But it was that graphic and that slash on his face, you know, whether that's because, you know, later, of course, you become not just a designer but an art director. So I, I would choose a photographer and I would work with that photographer. And this is what I kind of want. I had a great relationship with Michael houseman We worked with a lot of stuff together and Grant Matthews in Australia. Um but uh, and andrew seldom on the kick cover on the on the, on the um, live baby live cover but yeah so the, 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 uh, saying, I, I look at that's one of my favorite covers I, I love i love to look at that and any of the um the, the um rolling stones covers some girls i love that cover yeah with the car He like the bad ads so um yeah so that's there you go
1: the next question is is there an artist living or, was, or who has passed? Who you didn't work with, or you haven't you haven't worked with that you would like to work with and create an album cover? Yeah, uh,
2: well, it was two people: Roxy Music and David
1: Bowie. Roxy Music and David, David Bowie. Bowie. Okay. Well,
2: and I tell you why Roxy Music. Their covers made me want to design album covers because. They weren't anything like I do, but they were luxurious, and they, they were like, yeah, I, I, I love them. Yeah, the, the beautiful women on them, the fact that the band was very rarely on them. And I met Brian Ferry, and I told him that, that I was by him to become an album cover desi- designer, but I never got to
1: work with him. You are cutting That's in great. and out a little bit, so um, so we might yeah. we might finish it up. But look, thank you so much for your time, Nick. It's been fascinating to to find out about your career, and um, yeah, and you you've really influenced a lot of uh, a lot of art around the world. So I thank you for that as well.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for appreciating it. Take care.